Chapter Twelve of Some Eminent Women of Our Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Some Eminent Women of Our Times by Millicent Garrett Fawcett. Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Sidney Smith, writing in 1810 upon the extraordinary folly of closing to women all the ordinary means of literary education, remarked that one consequence of their exclusion was that no woman had contributed anything of lasting value to English, French, or Italian literature, and that scarcely a single woman had crept into the ranks even of the minor poets. While he was writing this, a little baby girl was beginning to prattle, who within a very short time was destined to win a place among the great poets of this century. The very great gifts of Elizabeth Barrett were discernible from her earliest childhood. Her father was Mr. Edward Moulton of Burn Hall, Durham. The date and place of her birth are disputed. Mrs. Richmond Ritchie states in the National Dictionary of Biography that the future poetess was born at Burn Hall, Durham, in 1809. Mr. J. H. Ingram says in his Life of Mrs. Browning, in the Eminent Women series, that she was born in London in 1809, while Mr. Browning has written to the papers to say that she was born at Carlton Hall, Durham, in 1806. Three birthplaces and two birthdays are thus assigned to her. It is not, however, disputed that she was christened by the names of Elizabeth Barrett, and that her father afterwards exchanged the name of Moulton for that of Barrett on inheriting some property from a relative. At eight years old, little Elizabeth could read Homer in the original Greek, and was often to be seen with the Iliad in one hand and a doll in the other. This picture of her gives a beautiful type of her future character, its depth of loving womanliness combined with the height of poetic inspiration and learning. She was certainly one of the women of whom her brother poet Tennyson sings, who gain in mental breadth nor fail in childward care. She says herself of her childhood that she dreamed more of Agamemnon than of Moses, her black pony. At about eleven years old she wrote an epic poem in four books on the Battle of Marathon, which her father caused to be printed. Her home during most of her childhood was at Hope End, near Ledbury, in Herefordshire. Many pictures of her happy childhood among the beautiful hills and orchards of the West Country are to be found in the poems, especially in Hector in the Garden and in her Lost Bower. Much of her young life, too, is described in the earlier part of her greatest work, Aurora Lee. We do not hear much about the mother of the poetess, but her grandmother, it is said, looked with much disfavor on the little lady's learning, and said she would rather hear that Elizabeth's hemming were more carefully finished than all of this Greek. Her father, however, was a worthy guardian of the wonderful child that had been entrusted to him. He fostered and encouraged her genius by all means in his power. He must have had a singular power of self-devotion and self-sacrifice and it is probable that much of his daughter's beautiful moral nature was inherited from him. When Elizabeth was about twenty, her mother lay in her last illness, and simultaneously money troubles brought on by no fault of his own fell upon Mr. Barrett. 
he would allow no knowledge of this to disturb his wife during her illness and in order effectually to hide the truth from her he made an arrangement with his creditors which very materially reduced his income for life so that no reduction of his establishment should take place as long as his wife lived two other misfortunes had an important influence on elizabeth barrett's youth when she was about fifteen she was trying to saddle her pony by herself in the paddock when she was thrown to the ground and her spine was injured in a manner that kept her lying on her back for four years scarcely had she recovered from this injury when another terrible calamity nearly overwhelmed her she had been sent to torquay for the benefit of her health and had been there nearly a year when her eldest brother came to visit her in order to consult her about some trouble of his own with two other young men all good sailors he took a little boat intending to have a sail along the coast within a few minutes of starting and almost under his sister's window the boat went down and young barrett and his companions were drowned the grief and horror caused by this terrible event nearly killed her it was almost a year before she could be moved by slow stages of twenty miles a day to london those who knew her best at that time believed that she would have died if she had not been sustained by her love of literary pursuits which afforded some relief to her mind from the constant dwelling on the tragedy of which she accused herself of being the cause miss milford says in her literary recollections the house she occupied at torquay had been chosen as one of the most sheltered in the place it stood at the bottom of the cliffs almost close to the sea and she told me herself that during that whole winter the sound of the waves rang in her ears like the moans of one dying still she clung to literature and greek in all probability she would have died without that wholesome diversion to her thoughts her medical attendant did not always understand this to prevent the remonstrance of her family physician dr berry she caused a small edition of plato to be so bound as to resemble a novel he did not know skilful and kind though he were that to her such books were not an arduous and painful study but a consolation and a delight she however appeared to be condemned to a life of perpetual invalidism she now lived in london with her father and was confined to one large darkened room and saw no one but her own family and a few intimate friends the chief of whom were miss mitford mrs jameson and mr john kenyon the impression she produced on all who came into contact with her was that she was the most charming and delightful person they had ever met her sweetness her purity and the tender womanliness of her character made her friends forget her learning and her genius miss mitford says she often travelled five-and-forty miles expressly to see her and returned the same evening without entering another house the seclusion in which she lived was perhaps not unfavourable to literary work she lay on her couch not only as miss mitford says reading every book worth reading in almost every language but giving herself heart and soul to that poetry of which she seemed born to be the priestess in eighteen thirty five she published prometheus and other poems which in the opinion of the most competent judges raised her at once to a high rank among english poets in eighteen forty three she wrote the cry of the children 
to which lord shaftesbury owed so much in his efforts to protect factory children from being ground to death by overwork and later she wrote the noble song for the ragged schools of london whose words go straight to every mother's heart during her long period of illness her chief link with the outside world was her cousin mr john kenyon to whom aurora lee is dedicated he knew all who were best worth knowing in the great world of london and he occasionally introduced to her one and another of these whom he believed to be most capable of appreciating her and pleasing her in this way in eighteen forty six he brought mr robert browning to see miss barrett in the autumn of that same year the poet and poetess were married what his love was for her and hers for him may be gathered in the lovely poem katerina to camones and in the forty-three sonnets from the portuguese which which mrs browning wrote before her marriage almost directly after her marriage mrs browning was ordered abroad for the benefit of her health and the chief part of the remaining fifteen years of her life was spent in italy she identified herself completely with those who were struggling for the unity and independence of italy and much of her poetry from this time onwards is colored by her political convictions in florence in eighteen forty nine her only child robert browning the younger was born the deep joy of motherhood suffuses much of her noblest part of aurora lee one is tempted to believe that the lovely description of martin earl bending over her sleeping child the yearling creature warm and moist with life to the bottom of his dimples could have been written by no one who had not felt a mother's love in any case it adds to one's pleasure in reading it to know that the poetess was drawing her inspiration from her own excessive happiness in the bliss of motherhood many have singled out mrs browning's sonnets from the portuguese as her chief work mrs ritchie in a very interesting article in the national dictionary of biography says of them there is a quality in them which is beyond words an echo from afar which belongs to the highest human expression of feeling many other of the best judges have said they are among the greatest sonnets in the english language but the work for which the world is most deeply in her debt is aurora lee it probes to the bottom but with a hand guided by purity and justice those social problems which lie at the root of what are known as women's questions her intense feelings that the honor of manhood can never be reached while the honor of womanhood is sullied her no less profound conviction that people can never be raised to a higher level by mere material prosperity make this book one of the most precious in our language she herself speaks of it in the dedications as the most mature of my works and the one into which my highest convictions upon life and art have entered if she had written nothing else she would stand out as one of the epic-making poets of the present century mr browning has published some interesting information as to the manner in which he and his wife worked they were very careful not to influence each other's compositions unduly their styles in writing are entirely unlike they abstained from reading each other's poems while they were in process of composition mrs browning always kept a low writing-table with inkstand and pen upon it by her side mr browning wrote my wife used to write it aurora lee and lay it down to hear our child spell or when a visitor came in it was thrust under the cushions 
at paris a year ago last march she gave me the first six books to read i never having seen a line before she then wrote the rest and transcribed them in london where i read them also i wish in one sense that i had written and she had read it no one but a poet could have expressed so perfectly the great pleasure the reading gave him there is an anecdote that when the brownings left florence for london in eighteen fifty six the box containing the manuscripts of Alora lee was lost at marseilles it also contained the velvet suits and lace collars of the little boy and it is said that mrs browning was far more distressed at losing the latter than the former however both were fortunately recovered for the box containing them was found by mrs browning's brother in one of the dark recesses of the marseilles custom-house as evidence of her position in the literary world it may be mentioned that when wordsworth died in eighteen fifty the athenium strongly urged that mrs browning ought to be made poet laureate her sympathy with italy was so strong that it is believed that the news of the death of cavour through whom in so large a measure the unity of italy was achieved hastened her own she was very ill when the news reached her and she died in florence on thirtieth june eighteen sixty one the municipality of florence placed a tablet upon her house expressing their gratitude and admiration for her and saying that in her womanly heart she had reconciled the wisdom of the learned with the enthusiasm of the poet and with her verses had made a golden ring uniting italy with england End of chapter twelve